listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by the Envision Advisors at Your Castle Real Estate. Hey everyone, Chris Lopez here, and this episode, we're going to talk about the 2021 Getting Started Guide to Investing in Denver. My goal with this episode is to give you a concise uh, episode packed full of information so, so you understand everything that's going on in the Denver market. Whether you're a new investor or an experienced investor, this should give you a high-level overview about the trends in the market and plus what the individual asset classes are doing here in Denver. So the first part, I will talk about trends, and then we'll spend the majority of the podcast talking about different asset classes, single-family homes, condos, townhomes, multifamilies, and multifamilies are five-plus units. So as I go through all this, I actually went through and created a few different outlines trying to figure out the best way to share all this data. So this is my best guess right now as to put how to compile all this into one episode. So if you have feedback or other data you'd like to hear in future episodes, let me know. I'm always trying to make it better and improve it. And the last thing I'll say before I go into here is I'm following the keep it simple, stupid principle. If you've heard me for more than a few episodes, you know that was one of my mantras in life, in business, and investing. And the reason I want to really highlight that now is because we could go into all the, the details and statistics about the market right now, but it probably puts you to sleep. And after a few numbers on a podcast, you kind of just start, stop paying attention to them. Secondly, I think a lot of that stuff really doesn't matter. I'm currently reading a book about Jeff Bezos and him building Amazon, uh, and it's fascinating. It actually compiles all of his annual uh, letters to shareholders the last 20 years, and you can see how Amazon has grown and also Bezos's thought process for it. And one of the things he's mentioned a few times in the share, uh, shareholder newsletters is he said, hey, as a top-level person, him running the company, he's focused on making those two or three or four big decisions every single year, and that's his main focus. He says those decisions are not that hard to, or those trends aren't that hard to identify because everyone's talking about it. Everyone's writing about it. Everyone's discussing it. So focus on those trends and don't worry about the small stuff because those big trends is what matter. And I think that is so important as people look into real estate because I did this years ago when I was getting into real estate and I see a lot of people doing this as well. They get so focused on this what if scenario or this statistic here or this thing and there's an infinite amount of those and they can trip you up. But if you follow some big trends, it's very hard to not make money in real estate. So on that note, let's start talking about the trends in Denver. And a common question I get right now or a common question I've gotten for years now is, is Denver in a bubble? And no, it is not. And from the very basic big picture uh, data, it's because we have very low supply. We don't have many houses or condos or townhomes on the market, and we have lots of demand. That's people moving here. Now, pre-pandemic, we already had this issue. Now, after pandemic, it's even gotten worse. Fewer people are listing their homes, and it seems like more people are moving here. So no, we're not in a bubble, and we'll go into more on that in a second. The second question I get a lot right now is, is it still a good time to buy rentals in Denver during the COVID pandemic? And I say yes with these considerations. One is, is your personal financial situation stable? So your job, your business, is it stable? Because obviously you need to be making money to be able to go out there and buy real estate. 
Can your risk tolerance handle uncertain times? Now, while we see no major red flags in the market, we are in a pandemic and we do have more renters not being able to pay rent, nothing significant. We still have some tenants that can't be evicted. So you might be stuck with tenant for many months before they can move out. So there is you know, a higher chance that something bad will happen. Can your risk tolerance handle it? And most importantly, can your cash reserves handle it? So that does happen to you. And the phrase I use is, if you buy a place and you have a tenant in there and you hit the unlucky jackpot and that tenant can't pay rent and they know they can't be evicted and they say, hey, I'm gonna sit here for three months, six months, nine months, can your risk tolerance and can your cash reserves handle it? Now it's a low probability, but it can definitely certainly happen. And it you know becomes real. And frankly, it sucks if it happens to you. I've had two clients so far, they've been in those unfortunate situations. Now, both of them have been able to get some money or their tenants been able to get some money for some nonprofit or government programs to help reimburse the rent. But still, they had months and months without rent. So obviously, that goes back to cash reserves and your risk tolerance. So those are the two big questions or big trends I want to talk about. Now, moving into uh, price appreciation, let's talk about this because I get this question a lot too. Do condos and houses appreciate at the same amount? Well, historically, homes have appreciated about 6.5% annually over the last 45 years, and condos have been about 5.5%. So not a huge difference right now. And of course, that 1% over 40 years, it can add up. Um, but right now in the current market, I think we're kind of seeing a similar trend. Houses have the lowest inventory right now, so we're probably seeing the greatest price appreciation on there. Will that hold true for the next 5, 10, 20 years? I have no clue. Again, kind of goes back to the basic uh, mantra that Denver is a growing city. So if you buy a property in here, uh, ride that wave of growth. Now, if you want to get more appreciation, then I would say probably place that bet on homes versus condos. But there's trade-offs on there, which I'll talk about in a few minutes when we get into the asset classes. Now, talking about income properties, um, income properties, they have continued to appreciate. So there's a really good chart here that shows the appreciation uh, quarter four over quarter four from 16 to 15, 17 to 16, and all the last couple of years. So I'm gonna read these off to you. It appreciated 17%, 13%, 14%, 0%, 17%. That's basically the percents for every year of the last five years. So we've seen some double digit and we saw a zero for one year. So why are people still buying multifamily? Because they're still a good investment and overall tenants are still paying rents. So there's still lots of demand out there for multifamilies. So kind of going back to some home prices and I'm jumping around here as I look at my notes. Give you context, in 1971, the average priced home in, Met in the Denver metro area was $27,000. And homes have gone up in price all but four years in the past 44 years. So last 44 years, price has gone up 40 of those years, and for four of those years, they did not go up. So just because we're at record high prices does not mean we're in a bubble or does not mean that prices will fall next year. People who say this are wrong 90% of the time. So keep that in mind. And price has been rising the last nine years in the Denver market. So let's talk about months of inventory. Because months of inventory is a great metric to track the strength of the market. 
It's a measure of how long it would take for all the properties in the market to be sold if no more inventory came on the market. So we've had tight inventory in the past. And right now in the last couple months, we've been like at 0 0.5, 0 0.4 months of inventory. I don't know what it is right now for you know the latest month, but it's below 0.5 months of inventory. It's very, very low. Which again, that just shows the extreme of how much inventory we don't have. And give you context, in you know 2013 to 2019, while Denver was growing and pre-pandemic, we're usually between one to two months of inventory. Now we're at 0.5 months of inventory or less. So that just goes to show we have less properties on the market. Now, here's a chart I really like that your castle publishes. They say, it asks, are you buying at the top of the market? Because prices are going up right now, especially the last you know, nine months since May when the pandemic or when the real estate market started coming alive again, we've seen some big price increases. So let's go back and look at some historical data. Let's play out the worst case scenario of buying at the top of the market in 2007. Back then, you would have bought a home for about $305,000 in June 2007. Then we had the worst housing recession. And if you held for five years, it would actually be up by about $10,000, meaning you would have bought for three dollars five and sold for about three fifteen. dollars So not great, but at least you're not losing money. Now, if you held it for three more years, so eight years total, your home would be worth $423,000 if you sold it eight years after you bought it. So that's $112,000 more than what you purchased it for. So as long as you have a medium to long-term time horizon, that puts prices on your side. If you look at historical data, at least in Denver and a lot of other national markets, prices don't stay below where they were for more than a couple years. So if you have five years or greater, there's a very high chance that the property will be worth more in the future than it is today. What about foreclosures? Are we gonna see a bunch of foreclosures? So in a nutshell, no, I don't think we will. So overall nationwide, only about 3% of US homes are currently underwater meaning that they owe more than what the property is worth. The flip side is that 97% of homeowners out there have more equity than what they owe on, the, on their property. So we have good forbearance data nationally. We don't have a lot of great data here in Colorado because it's not sharing, uh, shared that way. But a few months ago, Joe Massey and I did a podcast together talking about um, forbearance data that he extracted based off national data and their own loan servicing portfolio. And they had a lot of similar statistics to the nationwide data. So he extrapolated that down here to the Colorado data as well. So all those details, listen to that podcast. It was episode 239 titled Colorado Forbearance and Foreclosure Data or Google it and it'll pop up. But in a nutshell, um, you know, roughly about 90,000 homes were in forbearance from this data back in like October, November timeframe. So only 5% of those homes are delinquent, so about 4,500, and about 30,000 of those homes, or about 35% remain in forbearance. The other ones, they've either sold the property, um, or they've completed their forbearance and are performing, or they ever missed a single payment. So really about 40% of the people that went into forbearance are actually using it, and only about 5% total are delinquent. So if we have an extra 5,000 properties hit the market, is that gonna make a difference in the inventory? No, it won't. And will all those 5,000 homes hit the market uh, be some 
you know, fire sale? Probably not because majority of those people have more equity uh, than they owe on the home. So they can go list their property like a normal seller, get top dollar, pay off their loan, pay off their bills, and actually walk away with some cash from the closing table. So I'm not holding my breath on forbearances. I don't think it's worthwhile for anyone either. There'll definitely be some opportunities, uh, but nothing like we saw you know, in the last recession, what, 13 years ago now. And I bought two properties last year, so nothing is scaring me. And I plan on buying more properties this year as well. So let's talk about population growth. And this goes back to more of the demand side of the equation. So if you haven't noticed, you know, we're one of the best places to live. We all know this here and we always see it all in the various news articles and whatever online articles talking about it. Denver's always rated a top place to live. And we expect to have our population increase by about 50,000 a year for the next 10 years. So that's more people moving here. And this is net. So that is taking in births, deaths, people moving here and people coming here. All that together, we should be about 50,000 plus per year. So that's more demand coming and not enough inventory for those people to both buy and rent. So we should hopefully continue to see price appreciation and also rent appreciation and high demand for both properties you're selling and also you're renting. Now let's talk about population growth in context to residential sales. So I'll read this from the chart here that your castle has. Sales unit volume relative to population fluctuates depending on Denver's economy. Sales in 2019 were only 8% higher than 2004. But now Metro Denver has 25% more people than it did in 2004. So 25% more people, but only 8% more sales. And generally those should go up together. But again, because we have such limited inventory, we don't have enough houses for those people to buy. So this is a really good graph to go check out. It, it, it plots the population over total MLS sales and also highlights areas where we've had booms or bubbles and also recessions. So we had that bubble back in the early mid 2000s, followed by the recession. And right now, according to our population growth, uh, as your castle puts it, we're on the Goldilocks stage. Now, Goldilocks is that, uh, I don't know what you call it, I don't know if it's a fable or childhood story, but you know, it's not too hot, not too cold, but just right where the fundamentals are looking good and we should continue to see price and rent appreciation. And that right there is one of the main trends that I look at because I think it's very important to consider. All right, let's talk about uh, vacancy rates and rent growth. So this is a graph I'm looking at now. I'll give you the high level points on here. But basically when we are at 6% vacancy or below, we will see rent growth. Once we get around 6%-ish, rent growth starts going flat, goes above it, rent growth really starts slowing down. So this is data pulled from the five plus apartment data, so from the Metro or Denver Metro Apartment Association, because that's where they can aggregate all this data. So as long as we're below 6% vacancy, we should continue to see rent growth. So we're still expecting to see good rent growth coming on. Now, this next year in 2021, it's going to be all over the place. Some asset classes are seeing more rent growth. Some are seeing their moderate gains. Some are going flat. So it kind of depends on some areas, some other factors. So personally, in 2021, I'm just estimating kind of like a, a you know a very low rent increase or 0% for simplicity, which in the long run doesn't affect your numbers, really make a difference in year one or two. But again, just to be more conservative, I'm expecting to have lower rent growth here for 
this year. And that's more just me being conservative because a lot of the data is showing that we're still seeing rent growth and a lot of landlords are bumping up their data. So moving on to some other data here. Oh, the last thing I'll talk about, and I'll just give the highlight on here because not quite every month, but every month, every other month, I interview a handful of property managers to kind of get their feedback on the market. Because as realtors, you know, we're very good at looking at trends and putting transactions together and actually getting you a property. But when it comes time to actually manage a property, while we own rentals and we talk to our investors, we are not in the trenches and don't have the data like property managers do because they were doing that seven days a week. Now, we're all property managers reporting, you know, uh, strong strong desire for places. They're still getting bumping up some rent increases. And overall, the highest rent demand or tenant demand is coming from detached single family homes, I would say. But from all the property managers I've talked to and doing some back of the napkin math, less than about 0.5% of tenants are not paying rent and are not able to get evicted. So I talked about, you know, very few tenants are not able to move out. Now, on this note, in the last, I guess, what, almost a year now since the pandemic started, I've had two tenants move out of properties and they're both in a fourplex I own and they both just simply lost their job. One communicated about and said, and just as she was talking to our property manager saying, hey, I lost my job, I need to move out, how can we make this work out? So she moved out uh, and she was able to move on to a better situation for her and we were able to get the unit uh, rented back. My other tenant, he just stopped paying and you know, we can't evict him at this point. This was back in August, September timeframe. So no evictions are allowed back then. So we got creative and said, hey, Mr. Tenant, we know you can't pay rent. If you move out by this date, we'll give you security deposit back. Just get him out of there. So it took him about, I think we lost about six or seven weeks worth of rent on there. Gave him a security deposit back. And then it needed a new paint job and some other turnover stuff. He didn't leave the property in the best shape. It was about an $1,800 turn altogether. Mostly paint and blinds was the majority of it. Then we had at least, uh, we had about just over two months worth of uh, credit loss and vacancy because he wasn't paying there for those six weeks. It took a couple weeks to get the work done and then took a couple weeks to get the property leased up. So not ideal, definitely, you know, swung a few thousand dollars in the direction I didn't want to, but not the worst case scenario. So keep that in mind. This goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Does your risk tolerance and cash reserves allow for these um allow for these types of uh, issues with your tenants. Now, going back to what if you're on that 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0.4% where your tenants don't pay your rent and you can't evict them? Well, again, make sure you have cash reserves, but also make sure you're talking to your property manager or that you are aware of these various government programs. And I'm not an expert on these, so talk to a property manager or, or go to Mr. Google, because I've had quite a few clients, and also I heard from property managers where they've been able to get, you know, five, ten, the highest was like fourteen thousand dollars worth of back rent. There is government money allocated and various nonprofits where they want to help tenants avoid going homeless. And so if they go through their application process, they go through the program, they can get you reimbursed for back rent. So if you are in that situation, make sure you understand the resources. All right, so that's from a trend standpoint. I'm gonna move on to more about what's going on in the market from an asset class standpoint. And the first thing I wanna talk about is cap rate versus interest rate. I got a few things I wanna talk about before actually going into different uh, property types here. So the cap rate, you know, that's a metric that I like a lot. So your cap rate is your net operating income, or that's your rent minus all your property expenses, everything but your mortgage debt, your net operating income divided by purchase price. 
and that gives you your cap rate. Now, what we're seeing right now with interest rates being so incredibly low is that we are seeing prices go up and they're outpacing rents. So that is meaning that cap rates are getting compressed. And this is what historically happens when, when debt becomes cheap because people want to buy assets because they, hey, I can borrow at two and a half or three or three and a half percent, which is right around inflation. Let's buy an asset with that money versus sitting in your bank account. But while that happens, cap rates are going down and they're going down, I don't know, on a monthly basis, but cap rates are getting compressed right now. So what should one do? Should you just wait for the market to turn? I don't think so. But this is where you can't just take a metric and look at it uh, in a void. You have to compare it with other things. And cap rates, you have to look at your interest rate as well. Since we all use you know, financing to go out there and buy our rental properties, or you buy cash and refinance later, you end up using leverage, use financing. So what's the cost of the debt? Because a 5% cap rate depends, um, if you have 5% cap rate, if, you're, if it's paid off, it doesn't matter to you. But if you have financing, it makes a big difference. If I have a loan at 2%, but if you loan at 8%, who's making more money? Well, I am because I have a lower interest rate. So looking at the relationship between cap rate and interest rate is very important. Now, I know a lot of people say, hey, going back you know, to the past crash was the best time to buy properties. If you look at a cap rate to interest rate perspective, they actually had a worse cap rate to interest rate ratio than they do now. Since interest rates have really dropped what, a point, point and a half since pre-pandemic days, it gives you a bigger spread right now because we've seen cap rates compress half a percent or so the last year, but we've seen interest rates drop you know, 1 to 1.5%. So that spread's actually gone bigger. And here's a really good uh, example. I've talked about this on podcast, but in 2020, I purchased two condos. One was in March, right as the pandemic, pandemic was starting, and one was like mid-September. And so these condos, they're the exact same layout, they're in the exact same complex, they have the exact same operating data, the exact same rental data. So everything is the same, except for two things, purchase price and loan cost, or I should say interest rate on the loan. So the place in March, I bought for $196,000 and my interest rate's at 3.875%. The condo I bought in September, I bought for $212,000, but my interest rate's at 3.25%. So kind of number two is about $16,000 more expensive, and but it has about 0.6% cheaper interest rate debt. They both have 25% down. They both have an HOA of around 350 a month. They both have the same property manager, same taxes, same insurance, and same rental income of 1850 a month. So my cap rate on the first one is 6.3%. My cap rate on the second one is 5.8%. So a half percent worse right there. But here's the difference in cash flow. My annual cash flow on the first condo is $3,567. My cash on the second one is $3,558. That's a $9 difference. So the second condo I bought cash flow is $9 difference, which is, I mean, $9 over a year is, no, is nothing, who cares? But this goes to show they can't just look at cap rates. Look at the relationship of interest rates to cap rates. So I think 2021, maybe going to 2022 could be a really good time to buy if you have a long-term time horizon and you have the minds of, hey, I'm going to lock in some really cheap debt and just buy an asset that's going to appreciate. 
So if you can borrow at three, three and a half percent or lower if you're house hacking, but we're seeing three, five, six, seven percent price appreciation, it's not a bad spread right there. Do it all day long. And that's one of my personal strategies here is to go out there and just buy more properties and just play that game of cheap debt with buying an asset that should hopefully outpace inflation. All right, so moving on to different asset classes on here, I'm gonna walk you through uh, different properties. Actually, before I do, I got one more thing I actually wanna talk about. So, and this is just going back to that long-term growth. And I think part of the name of the game in Denver right now, since we are not, you know, we're not a cash flow market like a lot of the Midwest, we're also not a coastal market where it's all appreciation. Going back to that slide a few minutes ago, we're in that Goldilocks phase. You can buy properties at cash flow with a high likelihood of appreciation as well. And so if you look at a lot of investors doing this for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, a big way they've had success is by maximizing equity in their property. And so there are three ways you build equity in your properties once you put your down payment down. One is paying down the principal on your loan balance. And that can just be through your monthly payment, assuming a non-interest only mortgage, which is what most people buy rental properties with, or you can make extra principal payments with, which most people don't. Second is you can have prices, you know, your prices will appreciate based on the market. You have zero control over this and paying down the principal, you have a lot of control over that. You can pay more down on your mortgage, but it doesn't make sense to put a lot extra towards your mortgage when your borrowing cost is three and a quarter. Now, the third way is to go out there and add value to properties. So the common terms out here are finding value-add properties or the Burr principle, the buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat strategy. And that's the term that Bigger Pockets made very popular the last couple of years. So a common, a very common question is, can I Burr properties in Denver right now? I don't want to say no, but the best thing I can say is it's extremely, extremely, extremely hard to do. And this comes down to market fundamentals. The Burr strategy works really well in opposite market conditions where we have a buyer's market. And right now we're in a seller's market. Go back 10, 12 years ago, we're in a buyer's market. That was a perfect time to Burr because you go out there and find a bunch of properties where the numbers would work on there. But now when there's such low inventory, you're not be able to go out there and find a great property with enough margin on there to go on there, buy it, rehab it, rent it out, and then refinance and pull out all or majority of your capital. Now, it's not possible. People are doing it. But the people doing it in the single family residences, these are what I call the professional investors. They've got, they've been established for a while. They've got their marketing campaigns. They've got their crews. They've got their acquisition people. They can go out there and make deals happen very quick and they can be aggressive. But they've got a business. They've got an overhead. And it's their full-time operation to find those deals. Now, for a part-time investor or investor with a job, family, business, or a newer investor, it's very hard to find those deals. Now, I do talk to people, like potential clients, where they say, hey, I found this amazing property I'm burrowing, I'm doing this. I'm like, oh, run me through your numbers. I'm like, oh, well, sometimes I tell us, sometimes I don't. It kind of depends on my mood. But I'm like, yeah, that's that's a crappy burr. Like, those numbers don't work. Like, you're missing all this stuff out there. And for someone out there with very little experience and not that marketing ability to go out there and find deals, it's extremely hard to go out there and, and find a property that you can burr in Denver. So I put burring single family homes as the hardest strategy right now in Denver. I think flipping is easier than burring right now. Again, I'm doing neither of these actively myself, but I've talked to a lot of people. And while flipping is still tough, you have more properties out there that make sense as a flip versus a burr. Because a burr, you have to have the margins that make sense and it still has to work as a rental property on the refi, on the takeout refi on the back end, 
were a flip, you've got the market raising your prices out there. So, you know, you don't need to worry about being a good rental property. You have more properties out there that make sense as a flip. Now, to find burrs, or this is more commonly used as value-add uh, plays, the five-plus multifamily space, we see that's where we see the best potential right now. We've closed a handful of those in 2020, and we're looking at more right now in 2021. And the reason that's easier to find a burr property is a big part is because how they are valued. They are valued on an income approach, not a sales approach, where your single-family home they don't care about rents, they care about what the other neighbors sold those properties for. Or an income property, they really care more about the income you have and really the net operating income. So where it makes sense for looking for value-add properties in the, in the multifamily space is a property that's usually been owned by someone for you know, 10, 20 years for a while, and if they have their markets at under market rent, it's usually mismanaged either through just you know, poor property management or poor self-management. The units need updating. Great, they look good 20 years ago, but now there's definitely some room for upgrading. And a lot of times we see very simple things like implementing utility bill back. Because most places in Denver, most multifamilies have one water and sewer tap. Uh, and then sometimes they have one gas tap or you know one gas meter versus all the other meters, uh, all the units being individually metered. So go out there and implement some utility bill back, renovate the units, bring it up to rent, get in a better property management, install LED lighting, put in uh, you know, low flow toilets to reduce the expenses. Because the name of the game on multifamily is to increase rents while minimizing expenses. You can do both of those to increase your net operating income. Now, the reason this works in addition to those reasons, as I stated, is because you can do one or two units at a time and still have income coming in. So it makes it easier from that perspective. And I'll say these deals and this process definitely like it's a slower moving process in a single family home. So a lot of times for speed reasons, this is slower, which I think makes it more doable. Now, does this work in two to four, the two to four multi, the two to four unit multifamily space? It's a lot, lot tougher to do. We've not seen many people execute those the last year because uh, we saw some people buy them. We've been involved in these transactions, but the, the appraisal on the refi is what's caused some issues. Because again, it's a four unit property or less. So the sales comps approach still values as a residential property. So it makes it harder to get that value bumped up just based off of rents and net operating income. So I realize the majority of people out there don't have $300,000 laying around and go out there and buy a multifamily building. So a big thing to keep in mind as you look at the data trends here in Denver is to ride the wave. What's going on in the market? Because I think it's easier for you to adapt yourself to the market trends versus you making the market adapt to you. I'm not gonna change the Denver market. I wish I had that power to, trust me, I do not. Um, but maybe I can adapt my strategy to fit the market, with the trends of the market. And that's what we're gonna focus on here as we talk about these asset classes. So if you don't have a big chunk of money out there to go buy a multifamily or the infrastructure to go out there and find off-market deals for single-family homes, I think the best bet is to go on that Goldilocks analogy. If you look at historically, you know, the equity build on paying down your debt and also prices appreciation, that three to seven year time frame is typically the sweet spot where once you're in that three to seven years, and depending on how much it depreciates, it might be three years, five years, seven years, but three to seven years is usually the sweet spot to where it makes sense to do a cash out refi and pull out some money or to sell, take the proceeds and do a 1031 exchange. Now, we could spend an 
hour on this concept alone, and we've talked about this in detail in the past. So if you're not familiar with this concept on maximizing return equity, email me, I'll send you the link, or simply Google return on equity playing adult monopoly, and that we should be the first Google result there as well. If you can't find it, just email me and the team will get you that link because this is a really cool concept that has a lot of long-term wealth building uh, impacts. All right, let's start talking about properties. And before I do that, one last thing, we have to talk about how to underwrite properties because I can't just give you cap rates and cash flows and all this stuff without you knowing how I underwrote the property. And everyone underwrites their property, their property different. If you've ever looked at offering memorandums on income properties or commercial properties, you've probably realized that the listing agent tends to forget some numbers in there. Oh, they have no property management. They have no repairs and expense and they have a really high cap rate. Well, just because they write that on there doesn't mean that's the actual cap rate. So we try to write ours realistically and conservatively. So for a lot of those cap rates we see in offering memorandums, when we underwrite it, we're often one or 2% lower because we try to include all the expenses and go more towards historical averages versus using you know, the latest average from this month. So from a high level, that means 5% vacancy. I'm a big fan of putting 3% price appreciation and 3% rent appreciation, even though we see it's been more than that the last handful of years. Property management at 7 to 10%. And then reserves, 5% for condos and townhomes because HOA is paying for some of it. And then for houses and multifamilies, 8 to 10%, depending on condition and age of the property. And then actually plugging insurance and taxes as well. So I have a good table on this. If you need it, check the show notes or email us and we'll give it to you. And as I go through, this is one of the things where I, I rewrote this a handful of times trying to figure out the best way to compare compare assets because we have two types of people buying these properties. We have an investor or an owner-occupied house hacker. So the property is the same, but how you buy it and finance is going to be different between two categories. So let me define both of those uh, investor types, and we'll go through each property and compare the two. So investors are people that are buying properties and are not living in it. These are traditional investors, what you think of when it comes to real estate investing. They're often putting down 15 to 25% depending on the asset class. And the majority of landlords right now are buying condos and multifamilies because that's where they have the best cash flow or cap rates right now. Single family homes are the asset classes investors are buying the least of. And house hackers, these are people that are buying a property to live in it for a year and a lot of times move out and convert to a rental property. Now, when I analyze properties as a house hacker, I'm looking at that uh, assuming they've already moved out. I'm not going to go into data about while they're living there and might have a roommate or two roommates or three roommates. That's not necessarily, you know, that's not a long-term investing. That's just reducing their living expenses at that moment and allows them to save for next property. So I'm going to go through both of those. And for most house hackers, they are putting zero to 5% down. A VA loan at 0%, FHA 3.5% or conventional at 5%. So let's start with detached single family residences. So I always like to clarify, detached means there's no attached wall. So this is not a condo, not a multi-unit, and not a townhome. It is a house that does not touch its neighbor's homes. So if you think of all the houses in the suburbs, those are detached homes. And these generally have the lowest cap rates. A lot of times like, you know, like a low four to high 4% right now. And that's assuming with a traditional rental lease. 
Now there's two caveats here where we can get the cap rates up. One is by utilizing the room by room rental strategy. And that's where, let's say you buy a house, most people rent out to one tenant, so you know one family moving in there, or you can rent it out to multiple people and rent out room one, room two, room three, room four, room five, and so on. So a lot of our house hackers do that while they're living there and once they move out. Very few investors though do, because here's why. Um, it's a lot more management work. We have not been able to find any good property managers to actually manage room-by-room -room rentals. If you are one or know of one, please call me. We'll become really we'll become friends really fast this way because we have a lot of investors interested in this. The other thing is depending on what part of town you're in, a lot of the municipalities do not, they have a certain rules for how many unrelated people can live together. And so every town is different. And I'll go through a couple of quick charts here because this is uh, something actually Jeff White sent me a while ago from Denver, some Denver commission or some Denver study. So right now, Denver and Inglewood are at two unrelated adults living together. So really hard to rent room by room in that strategy if you wanna stay within the rules. Some people do, some people don't. That's entirely up to you to understand the risk to reward ratio. Now, people allow three, Boulder, Commerce City, Fort Collins, Littleton, Wheat Ridge, four, Aurora, Brighton, Golden, North Glen, Thornton, Westminster, five, Arvada, Castle Rock, Colorado Springs, Lakewood, Longmont, Parker, parts of Adams County, parts of Arapahoe County. And then six or seven or more, we have nothing else. So I blew through those. There's a really good chart out there that's uh, in the blog post or email. So we'll get you those, but make sure you understand that as well. So a lot of people do not rent room by room because it takes a lot more work, but we'll see higher cap rates that way. The second type of property you can get to get a higher cap rate is a property with an ADU, which is an additional dwelling unit, or a mother-in-law suite. Now, these properties are definitely harder to find, and there's very few of them. Now, the issues you may run into here is, you know, a lot of these uh, additions or income suites are not permitted. And sometimes these properties aren't zoned to have two, se two separate tenants living in that same property when you move out, whether you're a house hacker or a landlord investor. But both these types of properties give you a higher cap rate, but there's a lot more nuance on there. You may be in some gray area of the rules, and a lot of times there's more work involved. So as an investor, you have to put down 15 to 25% on a single family home. As a house hacker, anywhere from that zero to 5% range. So we'll go through an example here, and this is a detached single family home, four bedroom, three bathroom in Athmar Park. We closed on this uh, end of quarter three or beginning of quarter four for a house hacker this year. And we like Athmar Park. I picked this because it's a transitioning part of town because that's one of the last really affordable pockets of Denver. And this property is actually also remodeled as well. So actually we bought it from a flipper. And I wanted to include this in here as well because buying a remodeled property often makes sense for a lot of people as well because the prices aren't that much more expensive than a property that's not remodeled. And you should have lower repairs and maintenance uh, for the first you know five years or so. So purchase price is 478. Standard taxes, insurance, all this stuff. I am keeping repairs at 8%, even though it should be a lot lower the first few years. I'm going to the historical long-term average. Now I'm gonna go through buying this as an investor and also as a house hacker. So at 20% down as an investor, your all your down payment's $95,000. 
your total cash to close about $105,000. And a 5% down conventional loan for House Hacker, it's about $24,000 down payment or about $32,000, $33,000 all in. The interest rate on the landlord is about 3.5%. On the House Hacker, it's 2.5%. Now I'm going to go through a few scenarios here, and hopefully I don't lose you. For the standard single-tenant lease, I'm assuming a 10% property management fee. For a room-by-room scenario, I'm assuming a 0% property management. So that's the biggest difference there besides the rents. So as a long-term rental, they'll get about $2,600 a month in rent. As a room-by-room rental, it'll be about $3,650 a month. So the cap rate for the long-term rental is 4.3%. The cap rate for a room-by-room rental is 6.3%. We're talking about a 2% cap rate difference right there. That is big. But one is you're renting room-by-room. And technically, you know, if you did rent room-by-room currently in Denver, you can't rent out five bedrooms in this house. Uh, But some people do. Again, your call on there. When you look at cash flow, the cash flow for the landlord investor with one tenant is negative $182 a year. Room by room is $9,600 positive a year. For a house hacker at a single tenant, negative $3,000 a year. For a, a room by room situation, about $6,700 a year. So a big difference in cash flow there. Now keep in mind that all the other returns, debt pay down, uh, What's the other one? It's depreciation and appreciation. All those will stay the same regardless of how you're renting it out, whether a single tenant or a room-by-room scenario. And they'll be pretty similar for a house hacker or investor, but the debt paid out will be different for the house hacker because they usually have a higher mortgage balance than the investor because you're putting less money down. Now, hopefully you follow those numbers on there and got a gist of it and realize there are so many variables we can play around in here. We can put down less money, more money, buy down the interest rate, prepay PMI. We can do so many factors on here, but I want to give you the high level overview about what a single family home looks like in Denver. So let's move on to a detached single family home with an ADU in Lakewood. So the main house is a two bedroom, one bath. The ADU is a one bedroom, one bath. There's also a lot of room to park an RV or a boat, which which can actually bring an additional rental income. So this was bought by House Hacker uh, beginning in quarter four. Purchase price was $482,000. So I'm going to go through two scenarios on here. A landlord investor at 20% down and a house hacker at 5% down. So at 20% down, you're in there for about $96,000. As a house hacker, about $24,000. Your all-in costs are about $100,000 for the landlord, about $35,000 for a house hacker, assuming PMI was paid up front. Property manager for both at 10%. Rents for both places should be about $32.50 a month. Again, we're being realistic on here. We're not bumping rents up to unrealistic amount. And we're also not including extra couple hundred dollars a month for the garage and RV space. Your cap rate on here is 5.1%. Your cash flow for the investor is about $4,100 a year. Your cash flow for the house hacker is about $2,800 a year. So that's a $1,300 difference in price, or I'm sorry, in cash flow. So I want to pause here because if you're in a position where you can house hack, absolutely do it because you should see the power and the money you're saving. I cannot go around on house hack right now. 
But if you're in a position where you're single or on a family and you can do it, absolutely do. Because I've put down $100,000, you can put down $35,000. And would you rather have an extra $65,000 in the bank or an extra $1,300 a year in cash flow? I'd rather have $65,000 in the bank versus $13 extra year in cash flow. Because that $65,000 can go buy another property or two, or it's just some nice cash reserves right now in uncertain times. All right, moving on. Let's talk about attached properties. So these are townhomes and condos. Now, a new trend that's starting to make a lot more sense right now in the current market post-pandemic is actually buying new build townhomes. And the reason this makes sense is because it's a combination of the low interest rate environment. And a lot of times these have great locations. These are not like the new developments out by the airport. These are infill developments where a developer buys, you know, three, four, 10 parcels, knocks down the houses, and then builds up the townhomes, you know, 10, 20, 20 unit project right there. And then also it's just a brand new place which should have low repairs and maintenance and also a brand new place will command higher rent once it's rented out. So typically we're seeing a lot of these places between like the mid fours to mid sixes with most falling between five to 600,000. But the extremes about 450 to 650 is what we bought in the last uh, nine months or so. Plus we've actually seen some really cool layouts where uh, a couple of these townhomes have had like Airbnb suites or mother-in-law suites built in the basement or first floor, and there's separate units on there as well. So there's some really cool layouts on here. So as so a total side note, uh, new build townhomes make a lot of sense right now in the market, and also just buying some new build single family homes can make sense as well. We have a lot more content coming out that in the future episodes, because this is a new trend we're seeing as prices have appreciated, and also just the current very, very low inventory. So if you can go out there and buy a new build townhome in Wheat Ridge for $500,000, well, we can go out there and buy a 1960s house for around the same purchase price. Well, maybe buy a new build versus a, you know, a, a 60 year old home. So it's just another thing to consider on here. So as an investor, you need to put down 15 to 25%. As a house hacker, the same, you know, zero to 5% down options. So this property overview, this is actually a new build townhome that Preston Newberry purchased, uh, I think back in September or so. It's near Denver University. It's a three bedroom, 3.5 bathroom layout. And so a lot of these new build townhomes or layouts are pretty cool. Uh, the first floor is garage, uh, entryway, and then bedroom with an ensuite. Second floor is kitchen, living space, or living room. Third floor is laundry, and then basically two master bedrooms. So every room has its own bathroom, which will obviously command more rent and help you if you're doing a room-by-room -room rental as well. So Preston got his for about $560,000 and then all the same underwriting on here. So as a 20% down landlord, you'd be all in for about 119. As a house hacker, about $43,000. Now the cap rate on this is 4.4%. The cash flow, when you move out or when, as a landlord investor, is about $500 a year. As a house hacker, you move out, about negative $1,300 a year, about negative $100 a month. So both of those I would consider about a break even because we just have underwriting in here. And to clarify, both of these do include a 10% property management fee. Now let's talk about condos. Now condos are probably the trickiest when it comes to financing for owner-occupied house hackers, 
but they typically offer the highest cap rates as well. The sweet spot for condos are three bedroom, two bathroom places. We buy the majority of those in Aurora. And then second areas are like Lakewood and Westminster. And after that, it's kind of all over the map. But Aurora is definitely the hot spot for condos. It's just a great rental market and a great price point as well. And most condos need $5,000 or less of rent ready costs. A lot of times, you know, maybe a new furnace or some new windows or some handyman stuff, very minimal. So as a landlord, just assume 25% down for 30-year fixed. There are some weird underwriting uh, rules for HOAs that often uh, can cause issues. So make sure you work with a lender, one like Joe Massey and knows the HOAs because they help us win deals. I won't go into the details, but just assume a 25% down payment. As a house hacker, you can do VA at 0% down. You can do a 3.5% FHA or 5% down conventional. However, with the FHA, you have to make sure the condo complex is FHA approved. Some complexes are, some complexes are not. The example I'm giving you is not an FHA approved complex, so you need an FHA spot approval. If you don't understand what I talked about, do not worry about that, talk to your lender. So this place is what I used in the example earlier for the one of the condos I bought, three bedroom, two bathroom place, and I got the more expensive one at $212,000. So cash was about $3,500 a year, 25% down. all in cost. As a house hacker, assuming an FHA spot approval at 3.5% down, your all in in cost about $16,000 and your annual cash flow is about $1,200 a year. All right, moving on to multifamilies. So I want to talk about two to four units first. And we buy a lot of two to four unit multis in Aurora, Lakewood, Arvada, Wheat Ridge, and Westminster. We don't buy a lot of stuff in like downtown core Denver just because they're older buildings, but the out, the ones on the outskirts are usually all brick in like a 1960s build. And so as a landlord investor, assume a 25% down payment for 30 year fixed. If you want to go with a local bank, like a first bank, you can do a 20% down payment, but you'll have a five to 10 year arm. Now, before COVID drove all the interest rates down, we did a lot of loans on two to four unit multis through First Bank because you got lower down payment, you know, 20% versus 25%. But a lot of times the interest rate were around 4% on a 30 year fix to be around 5%. Well, now since COVID has dropped interest rates, we're buying a lot of multis between 3.5 to 4%. So most of our investors are putting 25% down to lock in a lower interest rate and also have a 30 year fixed interest rate. As a house hacker, you can do 0% down VA, 3.5% down FHA, and a 15% down for a duplex um, for conventional or 25% down for a triplex or fourplex. So conventional loans, while you can do 5% down on those on single family homes, you can't do a low down conventional payment on properties uh, here in Denver. There are some programs, if you Google them, But long story short, all the numbers and rules, they don't work here in the Denver market. So assume a 3.5% down or a 0% down VA loan for a multifamily. So this one is actually an example of a duplex we helped a house hacker buy in Cap Hill. It's an up-down layout. The bombing is three bedrooms, one bath. Topping is four bedroom, one bath. It's all brick and was built in the early 1900s. And so these early build-outs are 
a reason why a lot of investors avoid the downtown area. Now, luckily, this property it had a lot of updates to the mechanicals, roof, plumbing, electrical, windows, all that. So it's all in pretty good shape. And it's just in a great location. Plus, there's some advantageous zoning that might make for a potential development play down the road as well. So purchase price was $740 with all our standard underwriting rules. So as a landlord investor, assume a 25% down payment. So your all-in cost be around $214,000. As a house hacker, assume 3.5% with an all-in cost around $55,000 for down payment plus all the closing costs. Now, going through all of these, the cash flow for the landlord is going to be about $2,500 a year. The cash flow for the house hacker would be about negative $4,500 a year. And they're both at a 4.3% cap rate. Now let's talk about multifamilies here and the fact that a lot of times they don't cash flow when you put down 3.5%. It's a double-edged sword. You get the amazing benefit of putting down a low down payment. But the, the other side of the sword is that you don't have a lot of equity, so it makes it harder to cash flow. And a note on here for multifamilies, um, a little nuanced rule for FHAs, if it's a triplex or fourplex, so three or four units, there is a self-sufficiency test. And this says that 75% of your rents need to cover your PITI. So if my fourplex I'm buying brings in $10,000 a month in rent, 75% of that is $7,500. The mortgage, so principal interest, plus taxes insurance, plus the FHA mortgage insurance has to be at $7,500 or less. Now, we did not sell a single triplex or fourplex to house hacker in 2020. Numbers didn't make sense. And normally we don't talk about self-sufficiency tests because it's one of those nuanced things that uh, didn't make a huge difference. But as prices appreciated, most of the triplex and fourplexes now will not pass that self-sufficiency test. So I don't want to say they're off, you know, they're off, uh, they're not possible FHAs because you can always put down more money. A couple of years ago, you have to put down five, 7% still made sense. We looked at one a while ago, it was going to be a 20% down payment. If we put down 20%, don't live in the property. That's the whole reason you're house hacking for a low down payment. So I have another podcast coming out soon. There's a lot more details on it. Just understand that house hacking scene for multifamilies has changed. So most of our house hackers now are buying a duplex, which has no self-sufficiency test rules. They're buying a single family home like discussed earlier, or they're buying a new build townhome as well. All right, so that's the last example there for residential properties. The last example I'll go through is a five plus example. And this one, there's no house hacking example because there's no favorable financing for house hackers doing uh, you know, an owner-occupied house hack on a 10-unit or 20-unit property. So as I mentioned earlier, we see a lot of value-add potential here in that five-plus space. So for most commercial lending, you'll need a 25 to 30% down payment, and these will be a five to 10-year arm with rates going from three, the mid-three to low 4%. Now, the term, amortization, amount down, your experience will all affect the interest rate you're getting on there. And most amortizations are between 25 to 30 years. And again, all these will be just rate mortgages. I don't know of any products out there that do a 30-year fixed like you can on the conventional residential loans. Now, when looking at value-adds, um, value-add multifamilies, there is so much, so much nuance in the financing here. 
You can go out there and buy a property all cash and then refinance it or buy a property with a construction loan or hard money loan. Um, there's just so many ways you can take down the property because a lot of times people will buy a property and then after that 12 to 24 month turnaround time, they'll then refinance it with a longer term debt or an agency debt and hopefully pull out some of their money and also get into better longer term terms. So for right now, for the example, I'm keeping the financing really simple just for the sake of simplicity. I'm not going into all the details of a shorter term acquisition loan. I'm just assuming on this example, the person's buying a property on one loan and keeping it there. But been look out because we have a lot more content coming out here. And if you need a recommendation for a great commercial broker, reach out. We've got a great one we work with. He knows how to structure these uh, loans as well. So this is a property, a 12-unit property in Lakewood. It actually, has two six-unit buildings. It was built in the 1960s, and it met the criteria we like. Owned by the same family for a long time. Marks are below rent. Uh, they needed updating. So just a lot of upside there for increasing rents and implementing some utility bill back on here. Purchase price is about $2.25 million. And I'm assuming a 30% down payment of $667,000. Loan cost about $30,000, you know, roughly. And we'll assume renovations about $10,000 unit to keep the math simple. So about $120,000 in renovations. So the current average rents, I'm sorry, let me give you the unit mix up first. So there's six, two bed, one bath, and there's six, three bed, one bath properties. So the current rents are about 1050 for the two beds and about 1150 for the three bedrooms. Their performer rents after the renovations are about 1300 and 1750. So that would take it from an average monthly rent of about 13,000 current to about 18,000 pro forma. So we're talking about a $5,000 swing right there in rent increases. So gross annual rents are about 160 currently or about 220 on their pro forma. And I got a bunch of rents on here for garage rent, storage rent, utility reimbursement, potential income, all that stuff. It stays about the same and is a lot to cover in the podcast right here with all those other numbers. But understand, we're comparing current to pro forma to show you that value add and how much money and equity you can increase in these properties. So we go through all the underwriting on here for expenses. The current net operating income is about $93,000. So that's the current rents minus the current expenses. Now, once you have it up to rent it or rents up to market and it's operated more efficiently, your net operating income is about $146,000. So that's about a $50,000 swing right there. So that's great from for two perspectives. Obviously, you get more cash flow, but then also the way properties are valued, that increases the, the value of the property. So you can go out there potentially and plus money and refinance it. Now, if you go out here and buy the property you know, with debt. And I'll give you a few examples here because a lot of times you buy with a commercial loan in an interest-only period. So currently, if you buy, buy this property at interest-only, it caps about $31,000 a year at current rents and expenses. If it was principal and interest in year one, you'd be a negative 5,000 a year in cash flow. So again, the play here is a value-add play. Now, once it's pro forma, meaning it's up to rent and the expenses are aligned to where you want it to be, your interest only and principal interest payments are the same to the debt service. But now on the interest only payment, if you did interest only, you'd be making about $85,000 a year in cash flow. 
if it's P, principal and interest, you'd be cash flowing about $47,000 a year. So obviously that cash flow is significant there. And again, plus you have the option to go out there and use a cash out refinance. So hopefully that made sense here for this property, hopefully for all the data I covered. Can I always debate, do I do it all at once or do I go through and make up different podcasts? I don't have the best solution. Give me feedback. I appreciate it. And if you guys have any questions on here, please reach out. Um, my whole goal with this is hopefully give you one podcast to listen to and give you a good market overview and then reach out to us to have that one-on-one -on -one consultation to help you figure out your best plans, your best strategy. Do not be shy about reaching out. Go to the website, fill out our investment consultation form or shoot me an email, chris at envisionrea.com. All right, thanks so much. 